This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. Implementing machine learning in artistic processes is another iteration of what artists have been doing for a long time adopting technologies as tools to perform new and amazing creations. We know that AI can augment the human creative process, but when will machine learning take over to create art itself? There are people on both sides of the autonomy fence. Should humans direct coded outcomes, or can machines direct themselves in ways we can appreciate? Dr. Mitchell Whitelaw of the Australian National University's School of Art and Design has connected with the Art Intelligence Agency to shed some light on the ways humans have expanded their digital toolkits to include randomness without machines taking autonomy. Mitchell's work proves in so many ways that though we may not let digits alone gain cultural beauty, we can certainly give aesthetic qualities to numbers for great societal benefit. I'm joined today at the Art Intelligence Agency by Agent Mitchell Whitelaw. Thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Could you give our audience a brief explanation of your research interests to start us off? Yeah, sure. I've been working with digital media and art and creativity for for ages, I, when I was in grade four, my teacher let me play with the Apple II that was in the back of the of the school classroom, and I made graphics with it. And um, I think that was I was kind of hooked from there. So yeah, I've been playing with that stuff for a while. I got very interested in kind of generative techniques, so things like artificial life or artificial biology type techniques, and the way that artists were using those to make creative work. And that was in the kind of uh, early two thousands that I was in late nineties that I was doing that work. And since then, yeah, I've continued to look at how artists and designers are using technology, in particular in a generative way. So by that, I mean how they're using code and systems to do things that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So to extend their kind of creative agency in various ways. That said, how, how would you kind of differentiate something like a, a generative art from uh, something which we've tried to discuss on the podcast before, which I will term as AI art, but that could mean anything. So I, I kind yeah. of mean more like machine learning, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So like in the last few years, obviously we've seen this huge, you know, explosion of machine learning techniques um, and artificial neural networks predominantly, but other stuff as well. Um, and that has kind of occupied a lot of the space, I guess, that that previously was artists who were playing with different kinds of technology, whether that was more algorithmic stuff or, you know, different kinds of systems, basically. So I think the distinction is really in, it's in the, it's in the type of system. So, you know, machine learning systems and artificial neural networks are generally based on uh, a model of sucking in a whole pile of data. So the model gets trained on a giant kind of corpus of data of some kind, whether that's text or images or, you know, um, all, all manner of things um, and then you sort of and then you kind of query the model you stimulate the model and the model throws stuff back at you um, and artists and designers are using various tricks to extract kind of you know um, outcomes out of those processes but for me that that dynamic of having lots and lots of training material having that corpus of material which gets kind of ingested into this system and then it calculates all those weights into a 
you know, to, to make this complex network. That's a characteristic of, of these machine learning systems. And it gives them, I think, a lot of their aesthetic character. And, um, but I think it's also a pretty fundamental constraint in what those systems can do. Um, I think I'm, I've always been really interested in surprise. So the ability of creative systems and in particular computational systems to surprise us because in a way, computers don't seem like they should be surprising. Like they're very logical, they're deterministic. They should just do what we tell them, right? They should be boring. They shouldn't mm. be surprising, but actually they are surprising. And it's, I've always been really thrilled when they are surprising. I think that's kind of cool. So there's this idea of emergence, which is one of a kind of like philosophical way of describing that surprise where something pops out of a system that you're not expecting or that you can't explain using your, your current ideas of the system. I've always been super interested in that. For me, um, yeah, I guess one of my criticisms of the ML stuff is that it's often, yeah, it's often not surprising enough for me or the kind of surprise that it generates doesn't seem like it's that kind of striking. Um, it seems like it's really synthesizing all of that data that it sucks up and returning something which is very characteristically a kind of synthesis of all of that data. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so not an impression of AI art that we've we've seen before on the podcast so far. I mean, you've spent a significant time, obviously. You've you've mentioned looking into kind of digital art and in the realm of what we're wanting to talk about on the podcast. How have you seen machine learning or digital technologies enhance or augment human capability? Like, how much of this process uh, is determined by the coding, and how much is determined by the end user? Would you say? Oh, look, it's, this, it's a very fertile cycle. And I think that's, and again, that's something that's actually a really long standing tradition. Like if you look at the relationship between art and technology, that's, that's a kind of inseparable intertwined relationship. And it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, from, you could say that um, very traditional artists are also always experimenting with technology by playing with materials, pigments, paints, brushes, you know, all of those things are kind of technological like investigations and so what happens is the creative person experiments with technologies and that changes what they can do. And they, then they come to some understanding of what that technology does. And then it inflects their practice in a particular way. And then they do different things. Then that gives them other ideas about what technologies they might. So, you know, there's this cycle of investigation and experimentation with technology and the technology we have today is exactly the same. Artists are doing exactly the same thing. They're experimenting with the technology, trying to understand it, investigate what it can do and they incorporate that into their practice and then they do that and they can't, then they kind of get bored or get interested in curious about something else and then they change it again. So it's, it's this cycle of, of iteration. I think one of the key, one of the key things that's happened, that we've seen over the past kind of decade or so is that the accessibility of computer technology and especially code for artists has, has increased. So there's been a big movement of trying to get artists to get their hands on code to the kind of materials of computing. Um, that for me is super important because that really changes what the artist can do in relation to the technology rather than just using the functions of predefined software. You can actually build software systems that do weird things. So to me, that's a really key factor. And machine learning is actually just no different. It's really just a different set of tools and software that you have to learn. And they're particularly challenging and kind of like difficult to wrangle those tools but they are just another set of tools. 
it kind of reminds me of what synthesizers did to music you know all of a sudden artists had to gain an appreciation of exactly how you can manipulate sound using electricity effectively it's which is yeah. exactly the same yeah exactly the same and and in the same way um some artists some musicians kind of got into the creation of synthesizers you know into making tools that they or other people could use and in the same way artists are getting into making software and again it's that they might be tools for their own use but they might be tools that other people are using as well so it kind of begs an interesting question for coders do you do you make something that kind of does something specific or do you rely on the creativity of the end user and try and make a myriad of possibilities yeah totally and that's that's an absolutely key question and yeah we're seeing we're seeing a range of different things but for me often the stuff that has the most character or the most interest is where the artist has done the opposite of being generic and is trying to pursue something that's just incredibly idiosyncratic and strange uh, and that is just about pursuing their own individual interests because you tend to get systems that yeah, just have a bit more kind of character to them because they reflect a very particular set of aims. So, yeah, like I'm thinking of... So someone like Mario Klingerman, I think his work is a really interesting example here where um, he's, he has a set of kind of aesthetic interests that he, that he plays with and he's in his working with uh, AI techniques, he's, those interests keep on coming up. So he does stuff with collage, for example, where he makes works that reference this kind of like surrealist you know, kind of Max Ernst style, um, you know, sort of photo montages, which I think is, yeah, has is such an odd thing to pursue, but also is so full of character and, and it shapes the kind of outcomes really nicely. Hmm. So we've kind of established that, you know, we kind of like to keep the creative elements of, of this process in the end user, in the artist, in, in the kind of human element. You're skeptical but i assume well versed in this kind of ai area do you do you have strong feelings or do you see much potential for more autonomy more merit in autonomy in in machine learning art uh yeah look i think autonomy is a fascinating it's a fascinating idea to play with and i think there's a lot of i think it's a fascinating topic to explore and it's and you know in the work i've done on artificial life really autonomy is one of the big things that hover over that field like could we make a system that just did its own thing that had independent motivations and just kind of did stuff? Um, and that's, so there's this impulse in a lot of that practice, which is pushing towards autonomy and, and the ML stuff is very similar. Frankly, I think a lot of the A-Life techniques get you closer because they're informed by, I guess, what you'd call like an ecological idea. In other words, that to have autonomy, you have to be an agent in some kind of environment you have to need to do stuff, you know? So ideas from biology have give us lots of examples of, well, what do agents need to do? They need to fulfill certain functions in order to perpetuate themselves and exist in an environment, stuff like that. Mm. Rodney Brooks, roboticist, famously said that he didn't think that we'd get AI until we got kind of embodiment, until we gave, so that AI needed to have a body to be in order to be in the world so that it could actually have intelligence. So he, he posits that intelligence is something that arises from a kind of embodied interaction with the world yeah, um, yeah i'm pretty into that um idea so autonomy in terms of software systems fascinating idea um what does it mean for art and art making look I, for me i just go straight to the kind of to to thinking about well what what would what would it be like if, it, if that happened and then how would we even know what it was doing if it did happen so one thing that we often when we think of autonomy we kind of think of oh that, that creativity is this kind of, you know, the creativity is like, I don't know, 
this kind of energy that like more is better. And so if we can amplify our creativity, then that's great and we'll have more of it. And if we could make autonomous, you know, ML creativity, that would be like some kind of superpower. Um, and so wouldn't that be awesome? But what we often don't think of is that, well, why should we expect that any machine autonomous creativity would be anything that we could recognize or that would even be any use to us at all, or that it would even register as art in our kind of culture. So mm. we've got to recognize that what works as art for us in our culture is because we all participate in the same culture. Yeah. And if you've made an autonomous system that doesn't participate in our culture, that, that you know, lives in some other environment, it's not going to have anything to do with our culture. It's not going to, it's whatever it makes is going to make no sense. We won't it's be not able to want to communicate it. with us. It yeah. won't want to communicate with us. And even yeah. if it did, we wouldn't understand it because it lives in a different world. Yes. So, so I think um, those ideas about autonomy are, um, yeah. So, so I, yeah, for me, art is really grounded in kind of culture and in, in being present in a culture with other, with other agencies. Um, and I don't think we're close at all to having autonomous systems that can participate in culture in any significant way. Yeah. Feeding things data is not the same as them participating in culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, I, w one of the themes we found on the podcast so far is, is really this idea of augmentation um, intelligence augmentation rather than uh, artificial intelligence, which you a hundred percent struck that chord. So mm, totally because, because we already have agents that are really good at participating in culture. They're called humans yeah. um, and, and humans have this incredible tool set of stuff they can do, including playing the technology, which lets them work in culture in different ways. And that's exactly what's going on with, with ML. Amazing. Well, I, I've also seen some of your work that you've written about collaborating uh, the Australian Central Territory Parks and Conservation with the Australian National University School of Art and Design. Could you tell us about how creative design processes and digital processes have been interweaved to help with a problem seemingly irrelevant like wildlife conservation? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess for a bit of context, like a lot of my practice at the moment and design and creative practices is working with data. And so it's kind of data visualization, interface design, that kind of area. Um, among other things, we, you know, we're being kind of flooded with data at the moment, but uh, from all areas of, of uh, the world, but I'm particularly interested in data about the environment and how we can are increasingly using data to understand what's happening in an environment, which is very dynamic, quite threatened. There's a lot of change happening and, and it's also quite significant, it's quite important and kind of crucial that we get a handle on it. So yeah, this data to me is very interesting, um, but it comes to us in lots of different forms. So these systems are, so things like camera traps. So a camera trap is a camera with a sensor that just automatically detects uh, something moving. They're used to detect wildlife in, you know, uh, in all kinds of remote environments. Uh, so the mountains of data coming off these camera traps um, and that's being used by scientists to understand um, the prevalence or occurrence of different species to track really rare things and, and so on. So yeah, for me, that's actually a material to design with. So um, in that collaboration with um, ACT Parks, uh, I designed a system that gathered data off a set of camera traps um, in a public uh, nature reserve in Canberra uh, and gave people an interface to navigate that data to also tag it and classify it so that they could actually find specific species um, and trying to make a site where people could actually engage with the, you know, the non-human things, the, the, the living things from this environment, um, but in a, uh, yeah, in a digital way, basically. So trying to make a digital platform that was a little, like an interface to 
um, a non-human world. It's an interesting collaboration, I guess, because it's not two bodies that you would often associate with each other and yet seems to actually have a really cohesive outcome. I would just like to give you this opportunity to um, let our audience know about any other kind of work that you're currently involved with at the moment or something you're excited about. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of my work is focusing on that kind of biodiversity data. um, And um, one project that I'm currently working on uh, relates to a big data set that was was observations from areas affected by the bushfires in in Eastern Australia in um, 2019, 2020. Uh, So yeah, there's a wonderful citizen science project uh, where a whole community of people are observing, are making observations in these burnt areas. Uh, and that project has been going for um, almost 12 months now. And so there's tens of thousands um, of observations that are accumulating. That's a wonderful kind of resource, but again, we don't have any good way of really exploring or investigating that. So yeah, I'm currently working on some visualizations that let you sort of dip into that to see and you to literally track this process of, of these areas recovering after the fires. Um, so that's really exciting. It, uh, it shows, it shows kind of what you would think, which is you can literally see the environment kind of coming back after this after this tragic event. But also, it shows you the humans in the mix. In other words, it shows you the people making those observations, observing their environment, reflecting on that, kind of making you know making their own kind of commentary. Um, so it's a reminder that data doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't just fall from the sky. That it's produced by people, and it's produced by people in an environment at a time for a specific reason. So yeah, it it kind of grounds the data, literally puts it back, you know, in in the environment. And as much as that doesn't have anything necessarily to do with machine learning, it is what I had noticed and why I wanted to talk to you about it was both of those projects, I suppose, is that it is such an interesting use of data and kind of creativity. I mean, uh, data visualization is, is probably one of the most important projects of the human existence in the 21st century you know we have all of this data and it's so hard to consume in a meaningful way that the the visualization of that is actually a really important aspect so um, uh, lots of merit uh, to you as well so (laughs) great all good well thank you for joining me to discuss these fascinating topics agent mitchell whitelaw Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Agent Mitchell Whitelaw. And please make sure to find more of his work with the links in the episode description or follow him on Twitter with the handle at MTCHL. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things. But for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.